0: Is this Graham Goodwin on the other end of my internet telephone phone to do part two of the week in sports cars following the Rolex 24 Daytona, but also following some questions folks have been aching to throw in regarding
1: other forms of competition? Is this you on the other end, Graham? You literally couldn't be that lucky. Yeah, you are that lucky. Yes, it is me. Um, Yes. Hello from the UK. As I frantically stuff uh, things into bags, uh, ready to jump out the door tomorrow, we'll come to why in just a very short while. I'm so um, glad you uh, said
0: bags. I'm so glad you said <laughs> bags.
1: <laughs> but um, it, it's, yeah, it's been a busy week again, hasn't it? The aftermath of the Rolex 24, stories emerging there. The news cycle still isn't quitting, um, despite the fact that I think the European season is going to be somewhat later than planned for blindingly obvious reasons Um, you know the news cycle is still not quitting there's still a lot to be written and news uh, coming uh, thick and fast, and we get into a couple of those stories pretty quickly in the week in sports cars this week. But how are you, Marshall Pruitt?
0: I'm well, and I'm sorry for the incoming phone beep. That was Simona Di Silvestro who I had to What's decline it? to keep speaking with you. So I'll call Sim back once we're done here. Yeah, so hey, you know, talk about busy. Good Lord. So not a complaint, just a little inside baseball sharing. After the checkered flag on Sunday at Daytona, I spoke with just about everyone who won one of their classes. I have published one of those interviews, or I've filed one of those interviews. (laughs) I still have one with Bryce Ward, winners in GTD on their debut. I know we have a question from Matt Neidert about that, um, or Neidert, I should say, or I don't know which one's correct, actually. Uh, What do I have one from kyle tilly with lmp2 uh, and i'm forgetting some other stuff so again not complaints just this week has been a, a kick in the good old behind but a good one so let's say thank you as always graham cooper tires we love them if i had a cooper tire in front of me i'd hug it right now uh, the justice sure. brothers man if i had some of that and it sprayed uh Many thousands of miles. I'd spray some across the Atlantic and get that chair of yours so it never squeaks. Uh, (laughs) Amazing folks. Let's
1: let's prove it. It it is still the creaky chair. Yep,
0: yep, yep. So (laughs) uh, manufacturers of fine automotive chemicals and lubricants. And then finally, torontomotorsports.com. They're the ones who bring all of our silly, silly thoughts and ideas and whatnot to Earth in the form of T-shirts and stickers and other stuff. Should I? I'll just share this because it blows my mind, Graham. I was sent a short movie file, .mov, from our friend Derek Koska, who owns and runs TorontoMotorsports.com, and it's an animation of my fat self uh, rotating in a 360-degree view. It's, it's an animated version of me. That is their proof for some form of little cast one eighteenth scale one something scale me. I have no like I have no idea like is this the, gonna be the the number one seller at your local guns and ammo shop when you need targets to put up in the backyard to shoot at? Is this something? Is it a plush thing? I don't know if it is a uh, figurine that I'm your cats and dogs.
1: At it oh, oh,
0: I'm already plush. At it, it go on. I'm already <laughs> plush. So that I've, I've solved that on my own. But I, it with catnip,
1: stuffing with catnip. Oh Come Jesus!
0: On. Yes. Uh, well, my yeah, Rosie, <laughs> our cat. She doesn't need catnip. I am. Like the old Roddy Dangerfield joke, uh, yeah, uh, my dog's favorite bone is in my body, unfortunately. She loves biting the hell out of me on her own. But yeah, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day, but I saw this little animation of what it could be, and it scares me. And like I said, is it going to be a little plush toy that cats and dogs will rip to shreds, uh, do their business on, and then be forgotten? It's probably befitting of me. But nonetheless, these are the kinds of hijinks. The good folks at torontomotorsports.com are up to. Memorabilia, sellers of all kinds of good stuff in the world of motor racing. So with those thank yous said, uh, what else can I tell you before we get rolling? Once we're done here and this gets posted, I'm going to write another story, which I think is cool in terms of the uh, uh, ramifications, implications, whatever-cations. That being, got a ring from Chip Ganassi Racing yesterday saying, hey, you want to do an interview about someone we hired? And I'm like, sure. Who, who's that? I said, well, we've got a new team manager who's just started to look after our IMSA program. I'm like, really? Because Mike O'Gara, who I've known forever, amazing guy. He was their team manager for forever on the sports car side, for GT side, you name it. Been an in Indy car for a long time too, but... Uh, with this new Cadillac program coming to life. Mike was just turnkey guy to help put it together and run it. Well, they've hired now former 30-year Honda and I think 28-year Honda Performance Development employee, longtime 10-plus-year HPD vice president Steve Erickson.
1: Wow.
0: Is oh, the wow. new team manager for Cadillac Chip Ganassi Racing. And I've known Steve for a long time. Excellent guy. He's done many things inside that house, IndyCar side, all kinds of stuff. He's really been the one stuck in with the sports car bits, though, whether from top to bottom, everything from budgets to the hardcore engineering side. So think of the, what was that that just won the race, Graham? That Acura ARX 05? Okay. Yeah, he might have been kind of pretty seriously involved in that thing coming to life and it being developed into a winner. Uh, the what's the proverb about the uh, <clears throat> uh, about the poacher becoming the uh, uh, the warden? Well, that's yeah. a
1: big hire. That is a big hire.
0: So I'm not saying he'd bring any top secret stuff about the Acura to Chip Ganassi Racing. Keep in mind, Ganassi runs a four car Honda HPD powered IndyCar team. It'd be a little messy. If uh, Steve just walked out the door of HPD and is handing Chip all kinds of info about the Air X O five, we know that wouldn't happen. I just found that to be a pretty interesting twist because you don't often get that. So, write about that here as soon as we're done recording. But speaking of recording, where are we going first in our category E's?
1: Well, we got a, a ton. Uh, I might be expected of him questions because, of course. Um that was what we asked for. But we have got a smattering of questions from elsewhere. But so we're gonna kick off uh this second part of the weekend sports cars with a few questions from our Weck asms Elms and Echo section, um which I think you're gonna lob my way.
0: Oh let the lobbying begin. <laughs> right turn lover says the Red Bull Advanced Technologies areca chassis for hydrogen fueled cars. Is that going to be a spec chassis? Uh, For the class, or a mere inspiration?
1: Well, since Right Turnover asked that question, we've had a further announcement, which is that Green GT, which is the Swiss company that uh, collaborates with uh, the ACO and Total on the Mission 24 technology demonstrator project, is also going to be providing a spec powertrain uh, for the hydrogen class. So, effectively, the... Uh, The non-spec part of those cars is going to be the hydrogen, what I I gather is termed, the stack. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. I am going to tell you that uh, there will be plenty of ACO technical people um, in Dubai uh, next week as we set up for the Asia Le Mans series, and I will do what I can to find out. It strikes me MP. Yes, it will be spec by the look of everything we've been told so far. I think what we're getting here from the ACO is a fast-tracked hydrogen class, and my guess, and I'd be keen to hear what you've got to say about this one, this is going to have one phrase attached to it, and only one, and that is cost cutting. This is about getting that technology onto track in a meaningful, and uh, we hope, a competitive fashion, what uh, we were told over a year ago by uh, ACO President's Pierre Fionn is that these cars are going to be designed to do battle for the overall win at Le Mans. We don't know yet about what future, if any, it's going to have in the WEC or whether or not there might be some races, whether it's ELMS or WEC, that we might see these cars. We don't know any of those details yet. We'll bring those to you as soon as we possibly can. But uh, I'm hopeful we'll get a few more of the answers at least conversationally. Hope, too, we might uh, travel difficulties, and there are plenty of them at the moment, willing. There might be an opportunity to catch a few words with Pierre Fion, uh, who I think is coming to the last two races of the Asian Le Mans series in Abu Dhabi. And we should have some time to catch up with him on this and other things. So, yes, I think it is uh, very spec. Uh, I think they're giving the manufacturers the opportunity to do the the properly techie bits, the hydrogen um, uh, part of the powertrain. Uh, And you would guess, since they've been in rooms talking about this for quite some time, that that is what the manufacturers have effectively agreed to and asked for in these most trying times.
0: Yeah, I'm with you, Graham. There's the two sides of this that... I don't know if we have a full answer on, but we have to consider. And that is, like we discussed in part one this week about GTD Pro, this newly announced mm-hmm. thing for next year. That's super easy. GT3 cars exist a plenty. Man, there's a lot of manufacturers that make them. They could easily say, cool, we're going to take some of the things we already make and go play in GTD Pro. We don't know how many are going to commit. So there's a risk, just like IMSA announcing LMP3 as a full Weather Tech Championship mm-hmm. class, there's been some, but less than half, if we're talking full season, than what they expected. They expected 10 to 12, thinking they would actually have to turn some entrants away uh, to make sure that they had the only the finest of those 10 to 12 entrants at LMP3 for the full season. We are going to have five-ish, I believe. So mm-hmm. And so this is not... Speaking ill, it's just saying when you announce something like this, but in these cases using well-known existing, just pick up the phone and order from a wide variety of GT3 or LMP3 manufacturers, it's a little bit different to say, well, we're going to do something new with a technology that is experimental and announce it as a class, as an option and hope that there's uptake from manufacturers this just strikes me as a little bit odd, Graham. In that, uh, I, well, just yeah, gonna I I, just gonna close with saying odd. Yeah. In that, we have to assume, to your point, ACOWEC has sat in rooms with manufacturers, said, "Hey, uh, hydrogen. If we were to do it, would you come?" And they probably had a couple say, "Yeah," or probably enough to get them to commit to actually do it. We just have this rather strange situation now where had this happened maybe three years ago Mm -hmm. uh, if this had been implemented three four years ago i think there would have been more wide scale uptake with it because it was kind of newish and wow this is exploring new frontiers not saying i'm right but i feel like for where we are at today with the world of motor technology auto technology etc I just haven't heard a lot of plans from auto manufacturers who were interested in hydrogen a year, two, three ago today say, and we still happen to have a grand interest in it. I seem to hear more about "Eh, we're going straight electric or hybrid or carbon neutral something. So I just wonder if this hydrogen thing is going to be orphaned a little bit. Because it might not be a perfect fit for where manufacturers see themselves in 5, 10, 15 years.
1: The the only thing I can add to that, by the way, is the one manufacturer I've had a conversation with that I know has been in that room. Uh, and I've had a conversation with them about this project, and that one was senior source at Toyota, and what they told us was they're not going to go down that route at the moment because they don't believe uh, that the hydrogen tech is as advanced as it needs to be to provide, you know, the uh, the performance and reliability, um, sustainable reliability that you're going to need at Le Mans. I am aware. I mean, I seem to recall the conversation with Pierre. Um, which was at Spa two years ago when they were unveiling the hydrogen fuel station that will be accompanying the techni- te- technology demonstrator Michelin Le Mans Cup races this year, because we should see their tech demonstrator racing this year for the first time, uh, seem to remember he said three to five manufacturers. So, I think you're probably right. I think there may have been a little bit of drop-off, but I know some of the names in that room were pretty big names. It's going to be a fascinating thing to see how this all comes out now, because we can now, because there is a product there, MP, add yet another um, uh, step on the ladder here with Le Hyper Hypercar, kicking off uh, this year in the WEC with LMDH 2022 eligibility, whether or not availability, but eligibility in WEC 2023 in WEC and IMSA 2024 at Le Mans is what we know at the moment for these cars. And all of those cars should be in the same performance envelope. That's the plan. Uh, What's next, mate? Well, uh, before
0: I get to that question, should I ask, did we just unlock the code is the H and LMDH hydrogen?
1: <laughs> I think. Hang on a minute. I'm just looking across at uh, the living room in the house at the other end of the garden. And I can tell you that Oscar the Husky, his ears are so pricked up. He thinks someone's trying to take his name uh, off the back of those cars. He's not happy. Sorry. He's going to need Oscar. snacks.
0: Yes, no, good point. Uh, we're going to go to our pal Jacob Bain. Says, with Ooh. the Asian Le Mans series coming around shortly, what are your feelings? about the quality of the grid, especially in LMP2. Also, I know lots of teams jumped at the opportunity to join because of the unique situation surrounding COVID. But are you aware of any newcomers showing willingness to stay beyond the upcoming season?
1: Um, It's a great question. First and foremost, I'm extremely excited about uh, going anywhere, frankly, but uh, very excited to go back racing. Uh, It's going to be pretty intense. It's something like eight days four races. We've still got quite a big surprise to reveal uh, about uh, some aspects of the uh, series that you'll be hearing about in the next few days, I hope. Uh, but we're going to wait till absolutely everybody's there and everybody's on site and we know what's what, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still more to come from uh, the news generation machine that has been the Asia Le Mans series. Um, I think it's a pretty unique year. I think uh, the the uh, the plan to bring it to the golf, which was clearly forced upon the championship Uh, by circumstances of travel restrictions. That has stopped a number of the Asian teams we'd otherwise see. Um, The Rolex 24 profited from that with the RWR Eurasia uh, Lige effort opting to do that instead of Asian Le Mans. Uh, There's some issues about uh, travel restrictions from a variety of marketplaces. A couple of the Japanese teams we know decided to stay home and uh, we lost uh, just last week the Absolute Racing two-car GT team. Uh, So... It's a bit of a kind of, it's an odd one. I think uh, were we having a regular season, I think we'd have seen more of the Asian teams and probably fewer of the European teams. There is no doubt at all the opportunity for some of the teams to to leave their cars in region after Golf 12 hours and or the 24 hours of Dubai has been uh, very welcome indeed. Uh, I think it's fair to say as well, there were a number of additional teams that didn't quite get over the line in terms of uh, commitment. We could have seen that list at over 40 at one point easily. Um, I hope that the opportunity to do something in the Gulf with ACO rules racing beyond just the WEC's race in Bahrain um, proves to be a success. We've never seen mixed-class racing at this level uh, on either of the circuits we're going to be racing on, Dubai or Yas Marina. We have seen LMP3 cars race um, at both with uh, the creventic package and with the golf 12 hours at yas marina um but we've never seen lmp2 cars and we've certainly never seen those three class racing it'd be great to see how those two circuits both of which i'm pretty familiar with uh will operate with mixed class racing certainly yas marina and the grand prix um in 2020 uh was race rated something of a snore uh i don't expect that to be the case here at all what do i think um I think it's going to be very interesting, not just the H Le Mans series, but everywhere else when we get back to a degree more normality, to see just what we've got. Because by the time we do get back to normality, we're going to be in a countdown for what I think everybody is now expecting to be an absolute explosion of interest at the top end of sports cars. That in turn, is going to have an impact MP, I'm sure in North America as well, in terms of the the marketplace for teams and drivers looking to get onto that ladder if that top class is going to be even close to being as deep and as competitive as we expect it to be. So the answer is, are the signs of some of those teams staying beyond this season? Some of these teams haven't even seen uh, the Asia Le Mans paddock yet. So to to a degree, it's going to be a matter of whether or not they like that atmosphere, whether or not the drivers who, let's face it, are paying for this uh, like that atmosphere. But I think there's every reason to believe that there are friends to be made there. We've got the first ever Indian flagged team in ACO Rules Racing, starting for the first time with three uh, Indian drivers, uh, uh, drivers of Indian heritage, Kay and Arjun Maini, Naveen Rao, who's an IMSA champion. Uh, we've got a vast array of champions. Uh, what have we got? Uh, I think 15 drivers that actually started the Rolex 24 are due to be on the grid, three of whom won their class. Nicky Katzberg, uh, Carl Tilley and Dwight Merriman are all due to be on the grid. Um, it's a bit of a gathering of the clans, a very different season for us all, and I'm fascinated to see what that uh, gives us, uh, Jacob, when we actually uh, wrap it all up, Yas Marina, in a remarkably short period of time. About three weeks, I think, from now, we're finished, and we'll have the auto-entry Solomon decided.
0: Do we skip on to a new category, or is there one more you want
1: to uh, grab here? Let's grab this one. It's Dookie Davis, which is sort of from fun, but I put it there because it's a Le Mans question, which is, if it's up to you guys to pick four classes for the 100th running of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which four classes would you choose? The only requirement is the class has to have been raced at the race currently or in the past. You want to choose two and I'll choose two?
0: I want you to choose four because I spoke for (laughs) – I'm still trying to rest my voice from episode one since it was all in No, no, that's fine. This is all you, brother.
1: Um, GT1. No doubt at all. GT1 I thought was a spectacular class, and um, that I think would be just amazing. I think that would be just fantastic. I would hope we get the oddball stuff out there as well. Uh, I would be hung, drawn, quartered, dragged through the streets of Epsom by a wild horse if I didn't say Group C1, Group C, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, has earned its place uh, there as well. Uh, I'm going to go for, in its pomp, LMP1 Hybrid, um, because those cars... Uh, When they race together, I'd like to kind of just look up to the skies and dream that they might have actually got uh, by now a functioning hybrid system for the Nissan GTR, LM, Nismo, LM, GTR, GTD, LM, GTLM, Nismo. Um, And we could get four teams uh, back to back. And for a fourth, I think, MP, in tribute to um, something we've, we've said time and time again here. Sort of late 90s, early 2000s GT2. Why? Because there was a wild variety, and that's where you get the really quirky stuff. I know that's all a bit modern and postmodern, um, but that's me. Uh, that, that's c- sort of my era. They're the four Group C LMP1 hybrid GT1, and that same contemporary GT2 class with the likes of the Morgans and the TVRs and the Callaway Corvettes and you name it. Should say by the way, now I've said that, um, I suddenly reminded myself that we will have a driver driving in the Asian Le Mans Series this year that has driven three of those classes in his career has driven group c in fact was a factory uh jaguar uh, group c driver has driven gt1 has driven gt2 and that is Alan Ferté will be uh, racing uh, in the Asian Le Mans series at a GPX racing uh, Porsche at 65 years old and comes, by the way, um, with his last race having been a win for the same team at the 24 Hours of Dubai. Looking forward to catching up with um, the estimable Mr. Ferté. So that's my answer to that one, Doogie.
0: That is so awesome. So, so awesome. Where do we venture to next, Mr. Goodwin? Well,
1: we're going to break with all tradition and we're going to just take a mosey through the general and fun categories before we get stuck into whatever time we've got left with uh, a vast array of uh, of IMSA questions. So I'm going to serve a couple up for, for yourself. And particularly interesting, the answer to this one. Stephen Gates says, uh, MP and GG, uh, which sports car-related books would you both recommend to help with the current lockdown predicament? Be read once I've listened to the weekly Twisk instalment, of course.
0: Well... Uh, I'm staring down to my right at a number of books that I have yet to read. One of them would be Norbert Singer's new Mm. book on his time at uh, Porsche. I forget the exact title. Uh, I'll give you one more, and there are certainly others to consider. Uh, Developing a Champion, the Electromotive Nissan gtp awesomeness yeah and that was written by someone who worked for the team and was there and it is uh, i've only been able to thumb through it i believe that was a christmas present from mrs pruitt uh, a little bit of a, a slim down christmas this year and yeah it looks mighty fine chris wiles i believe is the author of it so if you were to hit the good old googs and type in Norbert Singer's new book and uh, Developing a Champion Nissan GTP, I would guess both would pop up, and you might be able to order those and have some fun with newish motor racing books in the sports car realm. And there's tons that have been published in, uh, I guess, call it the past, the, the slightly distant past that might be interesting to pick up, but... If we're looking for two pretty amazing things, one European based more than anything, the other one strictly US in terms of sporty cars, those are two. You cannot go wrong with Stephen. Any that jump out for you, Graham?
1: Uh, well, one I'm actually going to take with me. Uh, I bought it for myself simply. I can't remember what. Something popped up on social media reminded me I did have a copy of it. So Hair I just grooming
0: bought. by Andre Laurer?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I bought a copy of uh, The Grand Prix Saboteurs by oh. Joe Saywood. Now, uh, not a sports car book, but interested to see what that's all about. If you don't know about that book and that story, take a look online. Uh, staggering set of stories. Um, I have to say, I've got more, far, far more books than I've, I've read. This is, it is my plan for retirement, is to start reading the books that I've got. And amongst the ones that I'm looking at in the bookshelf at the moment, that I'm looking forward to getting a lot more in depth with, they tend to be the... Um, the autobiography uh, type books, uh, David Hobb's book, Brian Redman's book as well, uh, Tony Southgate, uh, Davina Galitza um, and uh, what was the other one that, uh, that's just flown through my consciousness and I'm trying to look sideways at my bookshelves at the moment. I've got a great Bob Wallach book that I'm looking forward to actually reading at some point but uh, it's it's those Pick a driver you admire from the past. The one I've not got, by the way, I'm absolutely um, uh, desperate to get to the time uh, to read that one, is one that we have had a three-part, uh, long-time three-part uh, uh, interview with on DSC, which is going to be revisited uh, pretty soon Derek Bell uh, uh, another one that's what the one I was looking for Dinger's uh, latest book is uh, it's a Vic Elford book now that one oh. uh, I, that's pretty expensive <laughs> I'm looking for looking for a possibility that someone doesn't know what they've got in their bookshelf uh, but that's one of the ones that I would be uh, looking forward to do the book by the way the other book I'm taking with me to Dubai um i've got courtesy of a weekend sports car uh, listener who sent me that book for uh, in return for me donating to the charity with which this uh, this was put together in the first place and that was my journalistic hero uh, russell bulgin uh, who went he uh, left us tragically early um after suffering cancer uh, was treated at my very local hospital. I could walk to it from here and um, his friends and colleagues in motorsport journalism put together a book fundraising for that hospital uh, with the best of his journalism. And I'm about to start that for a second time. Um, So, They're amongst the ones that uh, that are high on the I really must get around to reading those books pretty soon um, and hoping to get a little bit more time when it gets a little less mad than it currently is.
0: Let's see. uh, We've got a couple more here, and I know that, again, we've got a lot of IMSA, and we are, what, we have a finite amount of time today. So why don't I grab one here from Jacob Bame again? I like this one. Just I can maybe add a little bit of... Uh, something to it. it says obscure question of the week to COVID protocols in racing series include specific mask instructions, and by that I mean technical requirements. To series require, for example, N95 standard from all paddock members. If not, where do teams get their custom masks from? Uh, their race suits, maybe. Well, coming back to the uh, overstatement of obvious things, all racing series do not work together, so therefore. No, and also i do not have the pulse of the how many hundreds of various racing series do we think exist in the world graham to know what each one has for a standard so no. really hard to give an answer in general terms i can tell you that a mask and one that looks like it is not made from a paper towel or a napkin from your local diner uh i only know of visual eyeball test hey is that correct is this a recognizable mask that one is wearing I've not heard of any examples of folks being turned away for not having a specific type I can tell you that is very different from our weekly sometimes multiple times per week visit to hospital uh, to tend to a uh, variety of things that we need to uh, on the home front, and they do not allow cloth masks, for example. Oh. Or what are they? Uh, I think the other term is neck gaiter, which is a bizarre thing, uh, which just looks like a, a piece of T-shirt that's been a sleeve from a T-shirt that's been cut off and slide around your neck and pull up over your nose. Uh, none of those items are allowed. So uh, also... There's a, I forget what version of N95. There's another grade applied to it that has a ventilation aspect to it. So there's a little flap at the front mm-hmm. of the mask that when you exhale, the flap opens and it allows basically a, uh, an easier time exhaling. But upon inhalation, it closes. So in theory, it stops uh whatever might be outside the mask from freely passing in those are not allowed um so we have a, a wide variety of masks at home including the uh i guess they come in different colors but i tend to see them in blue just the somewhat traditional uh paper hospital mask uh that you would see and so yeah depending on where we go because we have a variety of appointments variety of institutions that we visit we actually have <laughs> very specific things that we wear. I have a uh, cloth mask that I've had for almost a year. Inside of it, insert filters. I believe they're N95-ish filters. Um, that is what I wear that provides the most coverage for my meaty face. And then on top of that, I've uh, been doing the double mask thing using a second uh, paper disposable mask over that, and that, while going to the hospital, has been acceptable because the cloth mask uh, is not, it's mostly covered and not exposed. So just sharing a little bit here that going to a hospital, very strict, yes this, no that, and we've seen some other little vagaries, which is funny too, just sharing for the sake of going to different medical institutions there's one network that we belong to and they have multiple sites here in the bay area sometimes when we have to go get this done we drive across the bay to go there we there are a few different ones that we hit on those days we bring a lot of masks of Mm -hmm. a lot of different uh, types of masks because even though they're the it's the same company with just going to different branches they'll throw up some things where you go oh Okay, be back in a sec and uh, go get the thing that they say you must do and you must wear that their sister properties has no issue with. So uh, I am unaware, Jacob, of any North American racing series having any strict or specific requirements for uh, any particular grade of mask. I think
1: it's... Much the same elsewhere MP it is simply a matter of just cover-up, really, more than anything else.
0: John Woznar says, Graham, I recently joined a Husky Lovers owner's page. Now I need a little bit of, uh, okay, he does. I was going to say, is that just for heavy people? Um, and I hope you didn't <laughs> see photos of me there. Uh, he says, I recently joined a Husky Lovers and owner's page because of my girlfriend's dog, Barley. I oh. noticed a lot of Huskies are very vocal and scream a lot but DSC uh, at DSC underscore dog. You're, you're good boy. Good, good boy. Oscar always seems very quiet in the background of the podcast. Do you have him trained to be quiet while you're recording or is he just a hashtag? Very good boy.
1: He is indeed a hashtag. Very good boy. But, um, uh, he just talked to us. He talks to us particularly in the mornings. Uh, so, uh, Oscar lives in a part of the house that we can have open to the garden overnight. um, and he uh, takes advantage of that, uh, as I find in the morning as I go through the garden. Um, uh, but when I go and get him up in the morning um, and let him into the rest of the house, and he's going to go and get his breakfast, he can get quite excitable. He 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 has he doesn't howl. Never he's never howled uh, certainly in ours, and he doesn't bark either. We've heard him bark once ever. Uh, he does what we call a row row row. So he's basically having a bit of a chat with us in the morning. Uh, which, if you've not heard Husky, can sound a little bit aggressive. It's not at all. Um, he would also do that if uh, someone comes into the house that he knows and likes and he gets quite excited with that. He has a bit of a chat with them. But generally speaking, he's a very quiet dog. He is indeed a hashtag very good boy. And, you know, to remind people who don't know, Oscar is a rescue dog. I don't mean by that he goes out rescuing. That he your dog uh, rescues
0: dogs is that I I might be getting this wrong. Would be
1: a nice neat thought, wouldn't it? Uh, But uh, he's a rescue dog. We've been incredibly lucky. He's a massively positive part of family life, Shay Goodwin, and he certainly through lockdown was an absolute godsend. And you know, if you have time and facility and the energy uh, in your life, you know, for whether or not it's a dog or a cat, um, you know. uh, it's a commitment don't don't underestimate it but there are so many absolutely fabulous animals that are looking for a loving home if you've got a local animal shelter reach out uh, now would be a good time to do it as long as you are committing for the rest of that animal's life
0: should i just mention here i don't know if it's now just going to be a staple every week but talking about our pets it's become oh, yeah. a signature part of the weekend. sports cars. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> folks already know that whatever I'm involved in is, is hot garbage. So, uh, yeah, anyways, hey, cats, dogs, and sports cars. Uh, that's what we got to bring you here. Anything else you kitchen. want to touch on before no, we just, – uh, just, just,
1: just to mention it's just lucky that Ryan Fish killer Kish isn't uh, regular, oh. uh, but a regular – He's a pet hater, we gather. I mean, we, we just but, um, goes
0: off. And, I mean, the guy the, – the Venom in that man's oh. veins when it comes to pets there's nothing he oh. hates more than a puppy or a kitten it's it's just real you know yeah uh it seals very
1: very good at predicting race results terrible with animals
0: well i don't know about the race results i mean he gave us a specific number and failed on it so uh
1: yeah be strong where do we go brother where do we, we go we go to him sir and okay. we kick off on what uh, will be as long as it takes until we run out of time for this uh, second part of the Week in Sports Cars. I'm going to start with Tyler Cole. Tyler says, it was another classic, hashtag relish 24, at least at the front of the field. Come to expect that this, with this event in recent years. Do you guys have an MVP? Most valuable player for each class except LMP3. I think we could go for that as well. We know that the cars, not exploding and not taking everybody out, was the star of that class. Ooh. Um, what do you reckon then? I would MP. love for you
0: to grab that one, and I, let's try and do that with some of these IMSA ones. Uh, I want to hear the the Graham
1: Goodwin thoughts on some. What are your MVPs? MVP, I, I thought Regan van der Zander had a fantastic race. Kamiko Biashi always worth a look. I think that goes down to those two in that class. LMP2 was just plain odd this time around, wasn't it? It really was a, a bit of a weird uh, example of the of the 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 craft and
0: (sighs) p3 was just strange in the sense that if we're talking about trying to single out a a driver or a team yeah i know we spoke about in in part one that you know there's some folks in the race winning car that did some pretty extraordinary things but the riley team went up a couple laps pretty early into the race and then just more or less held it so that doesn't mean Uh that excellence couldn't happen during the
1: eighteen no, I, I said, hours
0: it followed, but it was eh, a little bit anticlimactic in that sense.
1: As a, as a standout drive, if you look at actually the way that uh, the, Jerome Blakenmolen, uh, I thought it was a spectacular drive through the week. In fact, not just in the. Uh, um, in the race itself, they did they, 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 uh, the race didn't kind of fall their way without a shadow of a doubt. Um, as for GTLM, I think despite an early effort from Bruno Spengri doesn't quite make it uh, on this uh, occasion. Uh, fantastic first lap from Bruno, uh, I thought, but um, it was uh, not really something that caught the eye over the the full event. I have to say, I've not really looked at the relative times of the Corvette drivers. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to do that. I
0: have. Uh, Let me pull up a document that I asked uh, my friend Lee Driggers to compile from his uh, reams of data and information. Let me... Uh, Alright. The number three class winning Corvette Racing C8R fastest lap I'm just sharing fastest lap posted among mm-hmm. the three drivers, that would be a Jordan Taylor. Uh, Ooh. yes. Who is the fastest of all Corvette drivers by four tenths of a second. Um, wow. so he was point zero point one three zero seconds faster. Uh, one and a th- point three tenths. Uh, he was marginally faster than Nikki Katzberg to my surprise Knowing that Antonio is often the fastest in anything that he drives. Antonio Garcia, four tenths off of Jordan in that car. Mm-hmm. And we know that obviously COVID and he was pulled out prematurely, didn't complete the race with the team. Nonetheless, he actually turned more laps in the car than Katzberg, Uh mm-hmm. two hundred and thirty nine laps for Antonio, two twenty eight for Nikki, two seventy for Jordan. So just saying he was in the car almost equally with everyone else in terms of laps completed. So That's there within the number three car. Jordan's fastest lap, a 142.4. The fastest lap turned in the sister number four Corvette C8R. That would be Alejandro Sims. Alexander Sims, 142.8, though. Uh, And he was nine hundredths faster than Nikolai Tandy. And uh, Tommy Milner. So this is actually, I believe, the standout vehicle in the race. Uh, Mm -hmm. I still need to parse through all 49 entries or whatever it was. This was the one. Holy cow. This is insane (laughs) metric uh, of the race. And again, I'll confirm that they are the, the closest of all. I believe that is the case. Alexander's fastest lap, fastest driver in the number four car a one forty two point eight five six tommy milner slowest in the car one forty two point nine five six there is a (laughs) one tenth of one second variance from the fastest driver in the number four to the wow. slowest driver it, remarkable in the lap absolutely staggering right uh alexander's fastest lap was turned on lap 434 nix was on 113 and milner was more or less at the end of the race lap 739 so again i just you go what over a 24-hour race they're and again i'm not saying that their slowest laps you know there are a lot of other things where surely their lap times diverge but I just think it's phenomenal where you go, hey, when they needed to get outright pace out of the car, these three guys are perfectly matched.
1: So cool. So, so cool. So for the other two classes, um, LMP2, I I think what the question is, is who do you think is the quickest? It's not necessarily just that, though. And I think in the other two classes, specifically a GTD and LMP2, oddly, there were a couple of drivers that caught my eye um, through – the nighttime sessions coming into the morning, and both those cars won. One of them was in the air remote sport car, Carl Tilly, who put in, I thought, an absolutely fantastic stint aboard the 18 car. I don't know how competitive that was at the time uh, across the fastest uh, laps for the class, but at the time he was on track, he did a great job of holding and. Uh, you know, improving track position. Really good stuff from Carl Tilley in the era motorsport car. The other one was the GTD winning car. And whilst you know, the likes of Mr. Engel, Mr. Marcello um, grabbed the headlines, Philip Ellis. Um, now, Phil Ellis, if you don't know, if you've not heard that name before, uh, very British name. I think his father's British. Mother is German. So Philip uh, races under a British license, uh, but uh, is I'm not sure has ever lived actually in the UK uh, but he was racing the Windward Racing uh, AMG couple of really fantastic stints there against very established factory opposition and i think chucking his hat into the ring to basically say i'm a guy you need to take seriously moving forward his background audi tt cup champion a few years ago he's won his class um at uh, the 24 hours of dubai in gt4 and he's beginning to start to be a bit of a force coming through in gt3 racing not i a, think that's a not a factory, factory mercedes guy
0: graham not a factory no, no, guy not.
1: Yeah, No, no, he's not. He he might be one of those guys because I think he's a bit of a super silver. I think he's one of those guys that Mercedes will subtly push a piece of paper across the desk to a team manager to say, you might want to give this guy a call. Um, There's a lot like that. But I think he's a bit of a super silver. But uh, I think he's better than that. I think that's a man that as uh, his career uh, gets a little bit more mature, we might start to see mentioned as a potential factory wheel, two new, by the way, two new Mercedes uh, factory drivers named today. Uh, one of whom was it uh, was racing at uh, the Rolex 24. That was Jules Gounon, uh newly minted factory uh, Mercedes AMG GT driver, and also Daniel Youngadella, uh, now a factory driver for wow. the First time GT Racing. So there you go. That's that one MVP. Um, MVG. There we go. It's a new category. <laughs> the Goodwin Awards. So, Daniel Summerskill makes his first appearance, uh, probably not his last, let's face it, um, and he asks, do we think whether or not Felipe Albuquerque, who, uh, the winning car in Relics 24, he's won the LMS Championship, LMP2 Champion in the WC, class winning the 24 Hours at Le Mans in the same calendar year, um, surely he's got to be in contention for an LMD Husky factory drive MP, I know, I think. Oh,
0: yes, <laughs> without a doubt. Question here to answer in a couple of years, obviously when LMDH is up here, would our friend from Portugal who moonlights here racing in America, uh, would this be something that he committed to, to do in the States or could a manufacturer that has dual programs in the WEC and IMSA, could this be something that he chooses or focuses on at home in Europe? Don't know, but I do expect someone, if it's not his current mark, that being accurate, extending him that offer, I'm quite positive someone will say, hey, you're our guy. He's too good to not be. And also with him having a bit of a starring role, at least in closing the show with their victory at Daytona, not as if within the sport we don't know him well and he, he isn't a fully, uh, fully made man, but just for maybe some who... Uh, weren't aware that he was that guy, Uh, there could certainly be some manufacturers who are thinking, oh, that guy. We've got to put him on our list if he wasn't already before. So yeah, without a doubt, Daniel.
1: 100% and you know, unlucky that uh, the point at which he was emerging as a real star uh, was the point at which Audi uh, pulled out of LMP Racing. He was there as, I think, one of the younger guns um, that was coming out with uh, the likes of Ollie Jarvis uh, coming forward too. Uh, but he was unlucky in terms of his timing, completely agree. Matt Nieder says, uh, in order for Corvette Racing to build a car for gtt Pro, does this mean the car will have to obtain FIA GT3 homologation? If this is true, I believe there are some interesting knock-on effects to consider. Number one, GM must produce 10 vehicles in the first 12 months, and 20 in the first 24 months to be uh, to get that homologation. It is a very good point.
0: Yeah, the, the word must here, Matt, is is uh, the key key one uh let's see Acura joined GT3 in 2017 with the NSX GT3 Yeah I am unaware that uh, since that, it's that, been 20, well they, beyond 24 months that there are 20 yeah. of these babies in They're the are. world
1: There are There are 27 There's there 27 are? of them there yeah. are 27 of them. Where? Uh, are, oddly enough, oddly enough, I asked the question. I was at um, uh, Jazz Engineering who built the cars uh, where I saw the Magnus car actually undercover, ready to be shipped. That was, I think that's either Chassis 27 or 28. Uh, but it, there are indeed astonishingly really? well over t- – Yeah. I mean, the um, it's, it's a question it's, – it's sort of one of these things that's gone quiet. There was this big um, burst of interest in this. Uh, to be blunt and there is a there is a parallel here um Stefan mattel not a fan of the way that cadillac went gt3 racing at all uh insofar as I believe there were only ever two maximum three of those cars that uh, did uh, what was then pirelli world challenge um and just i sort of see his point that if you're going to have a production-based gt racer there needs to be you know something other than a factory program Um, In what is a customer racing dominated marketplace. But it's interesting. I think that the thing I put into the mix here is the letters FIA don't appear anywhere in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championships title. Um, and they can write the regulations any way they please. It would be disappointing were they not to take the opportunity to have a customer racing uh, version of the Corvette. I have zero doubt there will be a Corvette C8R GT3 Um, but I suspect since they will write the regulations and it is their train set they can do what they darn well please uh, down at IMSA but uh, it will be interesting to see what emerges won't it to see whether or not. that's one way in which they could potentially monetize that program
0: wow well a i'm stupid but we knew that so that's not a revelation i can only assume that a decent number of those acuras went into private hands from the outset meaning uh, club racing and or investment or something because I'm not claiming to have uh, an encyclopedic memory on where every NSX GT3 happens to be competing throughout the world, but the number 27 just seems like, wow, I know we don't have half that as many active uh, competing today. I
1: think there's – is it the five or six in the United States? You've got the two um, ex-Mayor Shank cars. Yeah, five or six sounds
0: about right, yeah.
1: Yep. the Gradient car. Have they got one or two? I can't remember. Two, um, I there's believe. The, there's the two uh, Racers Edge cars. I,
0: is, are, do they have two or is it down to one? Whatever it is, but yeah. Um, it's five or six. The that majority are aren't here. We know that.
1: Yep. There were certainly, um, when I was at the factory, there were five or six cars there. And by the way, just as a further underlining of that, the bodies in white for the next cars were already on the racks, uh, numbered up to 31. Um, I think at that stage with one car awaiting completion for the Italian GT program that's underway. But uh, there have been a number of kind of uh, cars. I remember, oddly enough, when Stephen Kilby and I were sniffing around this issue, uh, some time ago, we were trying to work out and count what we knew. And we came at that stage to something close to 20, but that didn't take into account a couple of cars, even at that stage that we were there. Bear in mind there are GT3 cars that are sold that are not for competition. That Some people do have GT3 cars as their track day car. And there are some big fans of, you know, fine Honda engineering. Uh, there are a number of cars, of course, that race in Super GT, um, in japan there's at least one that did race and no longer races the super gt i've seen that car it's with car guy uh in their fuji workshop uh so yep 27 or 28 is the number for them as for the the uh the cars that are currently gt3 homologated that haven't reached 20 the callaway corvette uh c7 um our gt3 is certainly one of them i'm not sure where nissan are with their Um, uh, nismo gtr gt3 nismo uh, but that's got to be edgy whether or not it reached 20 or not and i have to double check whether or not the late i think the later car is a new homologation so it needs to be 20 of those and not 20 of the earlier car plus those but there's not many that are in trouble there are some some remarkable numbers uh, in terms of cars sold through GT3 homologation. Oh, the fa- sorry, the other one. The other one that I think most certainly could be in strife is Lexus with the RCF GT3. Yeah. I'm not, not aware there's 20 of those.
0: There, I, I can tell you that there aren't. So if we, <laughs> if we give you a closing answer that disregards everything I opened with, uh, Matt, for sure, <laughs> my vaguely informed brain would suggest that as IMSA has done in breaking with the ACO and FIA on a number of things that suit its interests, just as they've done uh, with IMSA saying, hey, we're going to do what's best for us in some regards. I would have to imagine at no point in time has anyone from IMSA or any other sanctioning body said, hey, you want to make that GTLM?" start making gt3 versions you must do anything general motors uh knowing that this is meant to be in a regional championship knowing that imsa has also said the same regarding driver ratings hey yeah cool you set out your global this is what everybody happens to be list awesome if we don't agree with some of it with the people who race in our series eh, we're gonna adjust it as we see fit I think you might just apply that to this. And I don't know if it's so much a defiant thing, Matt. It's just, look, this is our series. Uh, we are the sanctioning body for our events. If we want to say your car is eligible and legal, and it is a air quote GT3 car that maybe does not have all of its uh, paperwork uh submitted uh, and accepted by the ACO, and, or I shouldn't say ACO, the FIA, uh, I would have to imagine that will be the case. So the the most interesting thing we will learn at some point in time here, Matt, is whether Corvette Racing plans on building more than just what they would use for their own mm-hmm. factory effort. Do they want to build X amount uh, to sell and service and let out into whether it's by we would guess maybe it'd have to be the U.S. since in theory I doubt uh, they're going to be full FIA GT3 homologation, uh, homologated and compliant. So that's the thing I'm curious about.
1: You want to pick one out from this vast list next? MP? Yeah,
0: Joshua Johnson says, with going to GTD Pro and the ACO having a commission on a convergent-style GT class, is this time that the ACO and SRO finally get together on a rule book for global GT? I don't know about SRO being involved, but I would say the ACO WEC. Uh, and IMSA would be wise to come together because yet again we have another split uh, at the end of the year coming in terms of a class here in the U.S. that does not have a green light to go over to Le Mans. Not as if an American GTD Pro class uh, entrant could not hire a GTE Am or GTE Pro at Le Mans. But again, the hey, we're going to take our hot rod and go play uh, that's going to be cut off for uh, for a number. Granted, there's still nothing saying that the McNeils couldn't take their Porsche 911 RSR and go to yep. Le Mans with that, uh, provided they got an entry. Uh, we've already spoken ad nauseum about Corvette. Are they going to keep their GTLM cars in GTLM spec or convert them if they still have GTLM compliant? They could take those if they want. Um, and same with Reese and blah, 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 BMW. But... Yeah, uh, I would just hope that yeah we do get the three pillars here. I don't consider the SRO a pillar uh, among the global conversation about sports cars. No disrespect, just they no, are no. they're not just, something we focus it, on very much here. Um,
1: and I think I think the other thing, MP, here is at the moment there's not the relevance that otherwise there would be if if we're in a world. Let's spool it back two, three, four, five years ago, and we we're just dealing with LMP1, LMP2, GT. It would be very different, um, I think, in terms of an answer than where we are right now, where the issue is we've got a gap. We've got a gap between where we are today and where we expect to be in 2023, and what do you do to fill that gap? Uh, I think we'd be a lot more comfortable if what we think is coming in 2023 was coming in 2022. It isn't. What is their comfort level about that potential gap next year? I think that's going to be an interesting series of conversations moving forward, whether or not potentially – you might get a class for a single year at the Le Mans 24 Hours in 2022. It's possible. There's no reason why that shouldn't be considered if the world is a rather happier place than it is now. Um, we just haven't really got, have we, particularly with all the uncertainty about what's going on in the world right now, a clear vision of what we'll actually have in 22.
0: Let's see, Alex Eichmiller, you ask about uh, Winward Racing winning on their GTD debut, wanting some thoughts about that. I'm going to skip that here, just in the interest of time. I don't know if I'm going to get the story done today, Alex, but for sure, if it's not up today, Thursday, it'll be up on Racer tomorrow. Spoke with team owner driver, uh, you name it really fun and awesome guy, Bryce Ward, uh, rang him about two hours after the race where, um, <laughs> he, I don't know how many cans of beer they bought, but he, <laughs> he had, uh, uh, reduced all liquid in a couple of those containers and said, so, and said, he's just, this was, it was an awesome visual. It's actually how I opened the article. Uh, I've only done a couple paragraphs, but, uh, he was sitting, in the garage, leaned back against his race worn, grimy Mercedes AMG GT3, sitting in the garage, leaning up against his car, drinking a couple beers, just soaking it all in. And, right, for someone who he's a gentleman, He's a massive success in business. He's, again, someone who, when you see him, you would think of him in a a tailored suit, executive, you name it. I just love the visual of him doing the same thing that the guy who just won his sprint car race Saturday night uh, covered in dirt and mud and whatever else doing the same exact thing of just soaking it in, drinking it in, uh, soaking it in, and, yeah, so I love that. So uh, that story will be coming here uh, to racer ASAP, Alex. So we'll get to that there. Uh, Let's see. JCC in DB says, looking at DPI into the same extent LMP2. and what areas of the cars can teams change or adjust as differentiators within a manufacturer? He says, for example, what does Wayne Taylor Racing do differently to the car versus Shank Racing? same with the Chip Ganassi versus Action Express with their Cadillac. These are homologated cars, so that it's a like down to some really surprising details. So dampers are homologated, there's a little bit of play that can be done there. Beyond that, it's mostly aerodynamic settings within limits and also suspension geometry, suspension setup Beyond that, there's really not a ton, ton, ton. There are some build aspects to how people put cars together that they're the better teams uh, do a better job, and whether it is how you route certain things, could it be a hose that travels a fair distance from one place to the next? How do you route that do you run it in a way different than say someone else with the same car because you found there'll be less stress on it or if you know there's an area where something chafes on all of on all of this model models examples is there something you do to protect that piece in that area differently than others where it that won't get worn through during the race and then cut into oil, water, hydraulic line, etc. There's some little differences made for sure but with the rules being as strict as they are it's pretty much the tuning items standard chassis tuning items where you can really make uh, a difference in performance and just to the point here uh, of what jcc in db has asked i'm not sure if we've read a question from you before if not thank you for sending in your first and if you have i apologize for forgetting it uh Wayne Taylor Racing's Acura. Shank Racing's Acura. Graham, it's like they were in two different races. And no disrespect to our our friends at the Shank team. But let's just look at how many laps were led. Uh, Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, I think I mentioned this in in the part one show. 648, uh, 647 laps, I believe, led overall by Acura. 10 belonged to Meyer Shank Racing's Air X05, 637 to Wayne Taylor's. And you go, it's the same car, truly. The drivers at one team aren't vastly different or better than the other. Why was one struggling to barely be at the front while the other one seemingly you couldn't get out of the lead or the top two or three? You know, those are questions you got to ask. What did you miss on setup? Is there a build thing? that you maybe got a little bit wrong. Um, Fitment of a component, you know, aerodynamic uh, seal on something. Was there a tiny gap somewhere that was trapping air and and causing problems and creating drag uh, that wasn't really readily available to the eye, but there are little things there that on these long straights on each lap can add up to whatever fractions of a second of time loss. These are the little areas where you go, uh-huh, this is also an area that can impact uh, performance between uh, the same brand. Uh, Joachim Bernardson, you asked a question here wanting uh, pr- it'd be a pretty long answer of what's the difference between DPIs and LMP2s when it comes to power and weight and downforce levels. Um, would suggest spending some time doing a little bit of research on the interwebs. I think you can answer a lot of that. Uh, if you still have some questions after doing that uh, catch-up on your own, please send uh, something in, and we'll uh, get to that next time around, hopefully. Graham, Felipe Nazar is a question here from Rob Horn. He says, I know Kobayashi had a great drive, but hashtag me personally. He thought Felipe Nazar was a driver of the yep. race. That first stint was fast. Uh, also asked if an LMDH program would pick him up. What says you about our friend from Brazil?
1: Uh, well it's another is it? we talked about Philippe Albuquerque. There's the next question along from Peter McKay asked about Renga van der Zander and you could Frankly, just go down through the list of DPI drivers. Uh, do we think that they can and should be picked up for LMDH programme? Yes, yes, and yes. You know, I hope we can have depth enough in that class that all of those talents and a lot more will be recognised. You know, you can look a bit further than that as well, uh, guys. Look into the LMP2 class and look at the, the hot shoes there that are looking to catch the eye of uh, the DPI uh, team owners, and beyond that, the LMDH team owners and manufacturers to come. Felipe Nasra, Renger van der Zander, pick a name, because there wasn't. A, a, I don't think there was a poor driver in that class, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I thought it was stellar stuff. Uh, just Even Montoya? That Even that old codger? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Is he, has he raced before? It's not a name i would come across. What I want to know is how
0: did he sneak out of the pace car? To jump into a DPI, I thought that was a little <laughs> cheeky. I mean, that guy's so past his sell date. I tell you, kidding. We love him.
1: Well, take well. It's, expanding that point though, uh, and skipping down a couple of here, Justin Holmes, a specific question to you, MP. Which driver specifically in the DPI class would you like to see in an IndyCar? car? And you can't have Montoya.
0: That would be Kamui Kobayashi. Uh, mm. I I have no knowledge of his contractual obligations to Toyota in terms of duration is he is it a one year three whatever the number is I don't know and I have no knowledge if he would have an interest in competing in IndyCar but I would say that he's not old he mm-hmm. is insane in terms of <laughs> speed and aggressiveness and these are two components that are really rewarded in indycar a lot of fast indycar drivers not all of them just look at the driver in front of them as prey that must be killed this guy does and so i know that he has his toyota link great for him honda bitter rival in the marketplace Mm -hmm. uh again would that be who knows i can just tell you that If I look at a Team Penske in IndyCar, I think Will Powers, 38, 39, coming up on 40, Paginot's late 30s, one of those two. Again, who knows how long they will continue. I don't want them to go away, but I look at Penske's team and say, yeah, uh, I'll be surprised if Roger and his Chevy-powered outfit isn't inquiring about Kamui's uh, availability here pretty soon. And I would imagine some other teams could do the same, uh, specifically in the case, Graham, of some of the older drivers. And there are a number yep. who are kind of 37 to 41, 42, where you know eh, they got some time but not a lot. Boy, Camui strikes me as someone who could be vying for a title first year, and I can't imagine it would take him very long to figure out ovals. So uh, yeah. he's the guy that stands out most. I know Felipe Nasr we've spoken about many times. I think he'd be a great fit. I will tell you. He was my number one choice. Uh, Over the last year or two, Kamui has taken that spot of, man, if he isn't the number one person to be dialed uh, the minute he becomes available uh, or once his contract is coming up at Toyota, if he wants to do it, I think he's got a pretty cool opportunity in front of him here.
1: And still does some single-seater racing. racing in Super Formula uh, in Japan still. He's a very um, versatile driver. it also began to get stuck into GT driving as well, Kamiri. Move on from that. Um, one from Daryl Boyd here. Uh, why do you have four drivers per team at Daytona, whereas 24 Hours of Le Mans has three? Well,
0: rule on the Le Mans side, correct, Graham?
1: Yep. You here, can only have three.
0: Yeah. Here... There is no rule saying for and not every team uses for. Mm-hmm. So I believe that question was posed to someone during the broadcast a driver during the broadcast and I think it might have been actually coming back here again to Scott Dixon at the Ganassi okay. team. They were a three driver rotation and he just mentioned they prefer three. He prefers three. I think he's the one who actually said we're doing three. And, the, you know, what's the team going to say? No. Um, he said, look, I've been in four <laughs> driver rotations here many times, and you just don't feel very connected to the race. There's pretty long gaps between when you drive. It just doesn't feel like you're really as you know connected to everything as you'd want to be. So with three, though, we're staying pretty busy. We're plugged into the race, and we're doing a lot of driving. That's our preference. So, I would say in a pr- full pro environment, too, where you know every driver is, you know, cardio gods and you name it, uh, since this is all they do, I'd say it might be a little bit less of a concern than in some of the pro am classes. And I'm not saying all the ams aren't working out super hard, but there are some who we know have other things to do in life and probably aren't at the fitness level where they could be in a three-driver rotation and never fade. So uh, it is an option, uh, absolutely. So there's no requirement for four, and
1: as we saw, there are some who went with three. I thought I'd seen d- 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 at least one team owner say in an interview it was to do with the number of nighttime hours, but uh, it doesn't, not at this level, that doesn't quite compute, as the honest answer. Let's move on a bit to something else that did happen in the nighttime hours. At the Rolex 24, this one comes from Ryan Terpstra, talks about Trenton Estep, drove between safety vehicles, cleaning up debris minutes after the yellow came out. This was at the bus stop. I think this was when the 79 car collected the – did you see the film of this?
0: Yeah. I certainly did. Yeah, but I want to hear your thoughts about it because we –
1: Yeah. Uh, He's asking basically. He says there'd be more than enough time for them to have gone through there once or been told about it. Can we expect additional penalties? How is the penalty for that the same as spinning the wheels on pit lane? I heard it described long before I saw it. I saw it, and I have to tell you, was pretty much appalled. Um, I I don't quite know what was in the mindset of that driver, whether or not he'd lost a little bit of control. We only, I only saw the. The moment where the uh, he went literally between two safety vehicles and we were off to driver 's left hand side on the track in the bus stop, um, and I certainly expected I have to tell you a significantly more um, swinging penalty uh, than he actually got, which I think was a drive through is that right
0: something like that uh, actually uh, I it was have a big a- mistake. Yeah. While you're talking, go ahead, Graham. I'm going to look up because I actually have a list of all penalties here in front of me.
1: Yeah, it was it was a big mistake. And so the the, the track had indeed been under caution for quite some time. Um, and yep, yeah, young driver in the LMP3 car uh, threaded the needle between uh, the I think it was a van and a truck, and uh, I don't think there were safety workers standing between the two, but they could well have been. Um, one thing I would say is that car retired pretty soon afterwards. Yeah. And, and I sort of wonder whether or not that might've had something to do with it.
0: I'm not seeing, um, uh, it's not popping up on my list of penalties here. Okay. So I apologize, but yeah, I, I, I mean, Trenton's been pretty darn quick and had, you know, he, he's young talent, quick talent. Uh, the first weather tech experience for him was writing off a Black Swan Racing Porsche 911 GT3R last year um, in January. And that led to the whole having to go borrow a chassis, then ultimately buy it from uh, yep. Wright Motorsports. Wright Motorsports needing it back when Ryan Hardwick had his crash this year. Um, you know, Trenton, Trenton did not necessarily cover himself in all manner of glory last year and cleaned himself up i can't recall anything else really that jumps out as a brain fart error or major crash and then this when this popped up it just seemed like i realized this isn't riding off a car it's a very different thing but we're just having to talk about judgment and you know end of the world no risk yes anyone hurt no is it just a bad look it sure is so What I would be curious to find out is if IMSA, it wouldn't be the role of Bo Barfield, race director during the race. I don't even know if it would be after, but I know that in some series they have legends or recent super high caliber drivers who are involved as say stewards, you know, the driver steward assessing an incident compared to just the race steward I'm curious if some of the veteran members, uh, former drivers who are part of IMSA's officiating team, might have been asked to go down and just have a few words with Trenton or, again, at the event, Zoom call afterwards, who who knows. But that's the kind of thing I wonder about because you make a mistake like that, was it just truly a brain fart? Did you actually assess the situation and think this is the best thing to do? I don't know. But it seems like an area of mistake was made that could have had pretty serious uh, outcome if things had gone wrong. What does IMSA have in place, Graham, as a tool to learn, coach, and uh, put on notice might be a bit strong, but some form of let's talk about it, Let's run through how you should have handled it, and then just to let you know, we're going to keep watching.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Next let, up.
0: Yeah, why don't I do some hurling? Uh, I, why don't I do a little bit
1: I, of... I, I, I'll just actually point out, by the way, that I have uh, put uh, questions 16 through 90, uh, 18, rather, are duplicates.
0: Yes, I'm seeing that. So I was going to ask them again. Uh, let's see... <laughs> Uh, John Sable, who I love, how much monetary property damage did Chip Ganassi cause at approximately 3.35 Eastern time in Daytona Beach, Florida, on Sunday? Referring to, did Chip trash the entire pit lane after the flat tire that took them out of contention to win? Eh, he seemed, yeah, to not be super happy. I'll, I don't know if others feel the same way. I don't think Renger was going past Felipe. I don't... I struggling to think of a scenario where the wayne taylor acura is not the winning vehicle uh we know that they were able to tow up and get close with renger in the car but yeah so uh, awesome question funny point yeah i i uh, i don't think chip did too much smashing of laptops uh and whatnot but yeah uh boy fun Uh, let's see where do we go next all right here's one that's a little bit fun and maybe it closes the show maybe we circle back to any others you think that we should do uh this comes from doogie davies says guys yes doogie davies is back and we have one that's related from mitch mortensen Uh, doogie says guys i love their passion but why does John, john hindoff always have to shout and sound confused also says, is Jeremy Shaw slowing, losing it, or did John's confusion and questions truly force Jeremy to completely forget how to form words into sentences? Okay, that's a pretty harsh thing you've said in Doogie. Okay. Let me uh, cover off because I think um, I think you might be able to wrap everything into one here with Mitch's addition, he says, something I noticed, he says, during the night owl commentary session with IMSA Radio, it seemed like stuff was happening on screen. The commentators were either looking at the race through a really tiny screen or people were describing what was happening in the race and then they were commenting on that. It seemed like they were asking a lot more questions on who was driving and which car they were looking at than actually offering commentary on the race itself and the drivers and the teams says I get it, grinding through the wee hours of the morning is tough, especially when there isn't a ton going on, but this just seemed like nobody knew what was happening. So Graham Goodwin, okay. uh as someone who received and I know heard that IMSA radio commentary while watching plenty, especially the overnight portion, what comes to mind?
1: Um right, okay. A, a bit of clarity I think is required here. First and foremost as regular listeners will know, it is not my, uh, I, I don't generally offer comments on the standards of broadcast, particularly if I've not heard or seen them. Uh, a Good case in point, NBC, didn't watch it, didn't hear it. Uh, Eurosport at the didn't watch it, didn't hear it, too busy to do my own job. In this instance, I did. Um, I think what we need to take into account is take a step away from what you heard, what you think you heard, what you saw, and think about the circumstances. Pretty uniquely, um, this has been a very different, not calendar year, but actual year. And the reality is, the IMSA radio team are not on site, they're not there. So, what you would normally have, and I can tell this from experience, I've been in that booth. One, you've got a fantastic view of the whole facility. You can see more or less the entire track. There's a tiny part of the track you can't see, which inevitably is the one place where you get the incident. Um, You've also got the fabulous uh, rooftop Ray um, in the nighttime hours, who is fantastic at picking up detail uh, and, you know, will acknowledge he's listening to the comms, uh, will acknowledge and will find the most staggering detail in very low light indeed. The third thing you would normally have is you would have somebody you can talk to on pit lane. You can actually go and ask teams directly. um, uh, could go pop down to the paddock to see what's going on with those cars in the paddock. In this instance, you can't do that because you're not there. You don't have those people on site. You do still have the opportunity to talk to to Ray. You can get people through... um, messaging services and through telephone but it's less direct so the reality here is what you're hearing is what we often get for very many other commentaries uh which is they're commentating to the pictures you're seeing at the same time so what you're what you're Hearing is them commenting on what they can see on a TV screen and on a timing screen. That is absolutely, by the way, no different, with the exception that you don't have the access at the moment to pit lane reporters, to what you'd get uh, from a TV crew. Say, for instance, the Le Mans 24 Hours, the European Le Mans series. More often than not, we don't have a view of the track. So I think what you're describing, somewhat harshly, I think, in a couple of instances there, is... Number one, they're not at the track. Number two, and this is another extenuating circumstance here, is they're not in the same room as each other either. I don't think so anyway. I don't think what we're actually uh, hearing there, we might have had one or two people um, at uh, the Hindoff home studio, but we certainly didn't have the whole team there. And that, again, can be slightly trickier, Um, if you've actually not got people in the same room sharing the same information sources, sometimes not in the same format. So I think in this instance, uh, take a step away from it. Was it what you wanted? Pretty clear the case of our two questioners. It wasn't what they expected. Is it understandable as to why it might be more difficult? It's thoroughly understandable. You know, I can recall in the years that I did the Rolex 24 with the IMSA radio uh, crew, what you'd have, you'd have a Paul Trusswell, and hope oh, you're well, Paul, uh, with all the kit that he has at his disposal. You'd have, frankly, a set of binoculars. You could, go to, you could see most of the garages from there because we'd be up in the, the main tower. And you'd have the opportunity to talk to your own people uh, who are either going to be in pit lane, in the paddock or in the press room to be able to get direct feedback as to what is actually going on. The fact that you can pull together a 24, 25 hour broadcast in those circumstances is a pretty remarkable feat. I'll give it that. Um, was it what you were looking for? In the case of the two question, questioners we've had here, uh, you're saying it, it didn't quite get there. I'm saying in this instance, I think what the guys managed to pull together was pretty darn remarkable. And, you know, we had, I think, and right six, seven, eight voices, John Hindoff. uh, Jeremy Shaw, Shea Adam, Uh, we had uh, Joe Bradley, I know was uh, helping to draw comment from that paddock, Uh, Johnny Palmer, Nick Damon. Um, You know, it's not easy when some of the senses and some of the kind of the links that you would normally have at your disposal are not there. It's been a very tough year to be anything other than a trackside commentator.
0: I caught a small amount of IMSA radio commentary during one stretch. And I don't, it certainly wasn't the overnight part uh, for sure. I just ready readily admit I haven't listened to IMSA radio for uh, many years and, and only do when I, uh, when that's uh, the, the primary source of uh, words or vision available to me uh, watched, pretty much all of it on NBC sports, which is why I was able to provide some insight about that. Not uh, most of it, not super complimentary. Uh, so yeah, in this instance, uh, have to plead ignorance because I didn't happen to uh, hear uh, any of the, anything offered uh, in the questions offered. I can tell you having been part of the IMSA radio commentary team at the Rolex 24, 2015 was the last time Mm -hmm. Uh, my first stint. um, I don't know why they gave me the shittiest one possible, but my first stint and I think only stint was uh, again, I'm going off of poor memory, but it was very late. And so having been up since about 7 a.m., I think my first stint and possibly only stint, which was four or five hours, I don't know what was midnight ish, maybe whatever time it was. I can tell you that I had been up for almost twenty four hours by the time I was done. And I had to wave myself off. So uh there was no getting a nap before doing it. Um so I was doing as much coffee as I could, but you reach that point as you know Graham and, and others do oh, yeah. where it just stops working. You're just drinking ineffective liquid at that point in time. Um, by the near end of my stint, I truly had to step away from the mic because now, and this is not meant to be making excuses, but race can, we can be a bit of a grind. So you're not getting a lot of sleep to begin with. And it's even worse for crews. So I might've had a couple hours sleep the previous night, couple hours of previous night, however many days in a row. So by the time we got to the race, getting up at 7 a.m. and blah, 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 I mean, I was already completely exhausted. So whined forward 24 hours later, and, I mean, seriously, I had to just step back and say, I'm out, because I was not able to offer coherent answers to anything. And so I offer this not as an example of myself and, oh, woe is me or any of that, I offer that as an example of when you get to that 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever point, I know that everybody on the IMS radio crew takes some sort of spell, catches a nap, whatever. Um, I believe there's a shift change when I was getting ready to walk out. You're destroyed. <laughs> You're just yep. destroyed. So, again, not trying to make excuses for anybody, just sharing a personal experience that – uh, if you go back and listen to the, if it's still available wherever, the latter stages of that 2015 Rolex 24 Imps radio broadcast, you will laugh to no end and ask mm-hmm. how and why anyone ever let me have a microphone to speak into because it is so terrible. And that's someone who's accustomed to doing these endurance races. The fact that those who are doing this full-time commentary and aren't total trash at that time of the morning, I think that actually deserves a heck of a lot of praise. So yep. there you go. And that's not I exclusive think, think, to IMSA Radio. That's to anybody doing 24-hour no, no, no. Uh, comms. Uh, yeah, uh, big, huge thumbs up.
1: uh, I'll finish it with this before we say goodbye. I mean, uh, you know, the the answer I think on particularly when you're an analyst on this, which Jeremy for IMSA radio is their senior analyst and is fantastic at doing that. Absolutely. Always worth listening to what Jeremy's got to say. uh, Does the homework, knows the people, pounds that paddock for the entire week uh, before these uh, these big races and I'm lost in admiration for his efforts, his knowledge base and his expertise in this one uh, and it's not easy when you're not there it's not easy when you're not there I've been very very lucky um, in the post lockdown um, period that I've been on site for every single race I've covered and I don't know what that's like, I don't particularly want to find out is the honest answer, I am grateful and excited to be walking away from this microphone in 20 minutes, uh, MP, and putting the last bits and pieces in bags before I walk out the door at stupid o'clock tomorrow to go and cover four more races. Uh, I hope all my colleagues and my friends, you know, at Radio Show Limited and beyond, get the opportunity to do what I know they like to do best, which is go racing. Uh, not to sit in front of a TV and talk about racing, but to go racing. It's it's a very difficult time when you are someone who's got that passion. And you know, if it wasn't what you're looking for, give another, give it another go. Uh, take another look, have another listen, uh, because right now, I just think we all need to be on the same side. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do to understand where the difficulties are and to reflect that what we saw was a heck of a motor race. Actually, it was, uh, it was, it was great stuff. Um, that's us MP for the end of this second part of the weekend sports cars this week. Thank you. Everybody that contributed, uh, to the questions we've got through a very large number of them, but trust me, there's probably about another 3000 words that, uh, we couldn't get to even in what is going to come down to about three hours of broadcasting. Um, Thanks very much for your efforts. Thanks to again to Ryan Kish who helped us with uh, the uh, questions being pulled together and with being the least wrong in our predictions. Thanks in particular to you, Marshall Pruitt, for giving up the time Stop in it. what's you know, a amazingly busy week. Um, and thanks, of course, to Cooper Tires, to uh, the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsport.com. Uh, I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been. Part 2, Part 2 of the weekend Sports Cars this week. We'll be with you next week when I will be, uh, I hope, uh, in Dubai for the Asia Le Mans series. Good night.